So today we're in Daniel chapter 8. Last week Dave took you through Daniel chapter 7 and you saw what, what's about to unfurl once again using different symbols than what we saw in chapter 2. And what we saw in chapter 2, we had the statue with the head of gold, which is Babylon, and then the silver chest, which is the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the bronze torso, which is the Greek Empire, and then the legs of iron and clay, which is the Roman Empire, and then the rock that is hewn out of the mountain, not made by hands, that comes down and smashes the statue, and that's the, the kingdom of God that will then last forever. So we saw that in chapter 2. And then last week we saw a different manifestation of those same events. And today we're going to see yet another manifestation of those same events. Except we're not really going to focus in on Rome this time. We're just going to be looking at the kingdoms leading up to Rome. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the Greek kingdom. And this character that is a presaging of the Antichrist. So we're going to look at Antiochus Epiphanes, who is a picture of the Antichrist that's yet yet to come. So this particular chapter is um, almost like an illustration or a rehearsal, a practice of what is yet in front of us. So chapter 8, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So in chapter 7, we moved from these stories where Daniel is interpreting dreams of other people to Daniel first-hand accounting, I saw this dream myself. And the chapter 7 vision in the first year of Belshazzar, and this one happens in the third year of Belshazzar, so it appears that we're going chronologically now in the, in the visions that Daniel saw himself and testifies of himself. King Belshazzar, you'll remember, is the king that saw the handwriting on the wall. He's the one that loses the Persian Empire. In the third, so this is the third year. So verse 2, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw there, standing by the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. This vision will be explained, and we'll see it again, but it doesn't hurt to hear the, the answer multiple times. This ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire started off with the Media part being the ascendant part, and then the Persian part grew past it, and it became the bigger part. And that's what these two horns represent. This is interesting that he says, I was in Shushan, the citadel, in the province of Elam by the river Uli. What, what significance does that have? People who make comparisons with uh, secular history and geography and so forth and the commentaries I, I read about and... They, they said that this particular spot became a very prominent uh, city in the empire that's to come, in the Medo-Persian Empire, because here we're still in King Belshazzar, we're still in the Babylonian Empire. So perhaps it's presaging that the importance of Babylon is going to diminish and it's going to move to some other place. 
because uh, the, uh, the Persians are going to come in and change the, what, what's important. But you can see that the Medes and Persians really spread out. And, and we talked about this earlier that the Medo-Persian Empire was vast. It covered about half of the people on earth at the time. It's one of the, one of the largest empires that has taken place. So it did become amazingly great. But it didn't stay that way. And by the way, just to go to some dates, you know, we started this story in 605 B.C. when Daniel is immigrated forcefully out of Judah into uh, Babylon. And Babylon falls in 539 B.C. That's when the handwriting on the wall happens and the Persians dam up the river, come under the wall, and take uh, Babylon with not, not that much fighting, actually. And so then the Medo-Persian Empire goes from 539 to 330. And this is very significant because Cyrus, is called my shepherd. Cyrus is called my agent. He's the he's the king, probably the same as Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede and Cyrus, probably the same person. And he's the one that said, go back and repopulate Jerusalem. So now we have a scenario where if, if you're a typical human, you start off with, well, wait a minute. Why are we exported from, from uh, Israel? Doesn't God care for us? How, how could this happen? You go to Babylon, God has promised in 70 years, I'll take you back. So you start going back and say, okay, everything's okay now. So it's going to be just business as usual. Not only that, we have the promises of king sitting on the throne of David and God's blessing and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, but you're not reading the other part, right? You're just reading the blessing part, which is pretty typical for humans. So what's about to happen is a lot more turmoil coming in the, in the world, and it's going to land on Israel. And God is telling people, look, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to happen you're not going to like again. But you know what? Just like I had everything under control under the Babylonian problems, I'm going to have everything under control under the Persians and under the Greeks too. So that's what the message here is, I think, in large part. So verse 5, Then as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing by the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this is now Alexander the Great coming from the west, and the, the Greeks then came in and just in very short order dispatched the Persians. It was an overwhelming defeat in really short order. And it's interesting, this goat comes, he's not even touching the ground, he's going so fast. It's, it's giving you the notion that, hey, this happens really, really fast. When we get to the very end, it's verse 27. It says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterwards, I rose and went out about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And it's interesting to think about why couldn't anybody understand this. I think in part, at this point in time, the idea that any power from the West could come and vanquish Persia in this short order at a time when Babylon is the ascendant power on earth is probably incomprehensible to them because Greece was just kind of a backwater at this point in time based on what I understand. So it's God telling people stuff that doesn't make any sense to them 
but it's going to happen anyway. Just because something doesn't seem plausible doesn't mean anything in God's economy. Things become plausible. Uh, Okay, so let me... You've got this one horn. The large horn was broken. That's Alexander dying. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heavens, north, south, east, and west. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars of the ground and trampled them. So now let me just give you the introduction of this. So when Alexander died, he was only 30 years old, 32. What was that? I think he's 32 when he died. Uh, he was 20 when he became king. His dad uh, suffered the, uh, the main occupational hazards of ruler in these days. He was murdered. And so uh, Alexander took over, conquered the Persians in really short order. And just a few years into his reign, he died of malaria or something. He's 32 years old. So he had a couple of little kids. And his generals, of course, took care of the little kids, as you would expect they would. But in this case, took care of means they killed them. As then there would be no heir, and they could be the recipients of the kingdom. And they divvied it up among four of his generals. One took Macedonia, one took Greece. Remember, they're Greeks. Philip of Macedon is Alexander's dad, so they're Macedonians. And Greece and Macedonia had kind of become one kingdom under Philip. And then Alexander goes and conquers the world. So one takes Greece, one takes Macedonia, one takes Egypt, which is, of course, a historical power, and one takes the rest, the Syria and so forth. And the Macedonian Greece, Greeks, we don't hear much about them. They pretty well got absorbed by Rome pretty quickly. But the other two, if you study history, you've read about them, the Ptolemies in, in Egypt and the Seleucids in uh, Syria. So the Ptolemies that have one ruler that's really, really well known. It's a queen of Egypt, a Greek queen of Egypt. Does anybody remember who this is? Cleopatra. Yeah, Cleopatra was the Ptolemaic queen of Egypt. So the Greeks are ruling Egypt. And she has the tryst with Mark Antony and they come together and they have the war with Rome and all that sort of thing. That becomes a part of that future. But the Ptolemies and the Seleucids also battled with each other. So let me just tell you this this history and we'll, we'll review it multiple times. But without this in your mind... It's kind of hard to follow what's going on here because this horn that grows is one of these rulers of the Seleucid Empire. And it's a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus Epiphanes is so called, as it appears, because on his coins there was an inscription under his picture, Theos Epiphanes. So Theos, theology, it means God. And Epiphanus, does it sound like an English word to anybody? Epiphany, yeah, an epiphany, which means a vision, right? So it's the representation of God. Antiochus had his coins like, I am the representation of the Greek gods, Hercules or Zeus or whatever. So he's appropriately called Antiochus Epiphanus. So Antiochus comes to power in about 175 B.C. His dad was the Seleucid ruler that had a battle with the Ptolemaic kingdom. Egypt actually ruled Israel until 200 B.C. And Antiochus III had a war with the Ptolemies and took over Israel as one of the outcomes of that war. So then, now the Seleucids take over Israel. And under Antiochus III is the one, the Seleucid, that takes over Israel, and then comes in and says the Jews should live according to their own customs. 
So there's a time of peace. And then Antiochus IV, who is Antiochus Epiphanes, comes in. And Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Judah in 175. So about 25 years after the switch from Egypt to Syrian rule, from the Ptolemies to the Seleucids. Then Antiochus IV comes in. He invaded Judah in 175. He was encouraged to do that by, guess who? Some Jews. There was a group called the Sons of Tobias. And the Sons of Tobias had been expelled to Syria about 170 B.C. by the priest Onius. The priest Onius was pro-Egyptian. So even though it's 25 years later, there's still factions of, I prefer Egypt, I prefer Syria. Now, it's very fascinating that that happened this way because it sets up like a disaster of disasters because Rome took over Israel, and I think that happened like 60 B.C. or something like that because there were factions among the Maccabees who were ruling at the time, and they were trying to, you know, who should win, me or you, and they invited the Romans in and said, why don't you kind of arbitrate between us? And Rome said, oh, that's a good idea. We'll pick us to be the ruler. So people don't learn. But anyway, Antiochus came in, and this is what Josephus says. Josephus is a historian. It says, the king being thereto disposed, so in other words, Antiochus was invited by these sons of Tobias to come in and attack Israel. And he said, yeah, that's a good idea. So the king being thereto disposed beforehand, complied with them, came upon the Jews with a great army, and took their city by force, and slew a great multitude of those that favored Ptolemy. So, you know, you got a us versus them thing. So this is a chance to get rid of all those guys. And sent, sent on his soldiers to plunder them without mercy. He also spoiled the temple and put a stop to the constant practice of offering a daily sacrifice of uh, expiation for three years and six months. So that's what, that's what uh, Antiochus Epiphanes does. Uh, So he outlawed, then he followed on and outlawed Judaism about 167 B.C. He erected an altar to Zeus in the temple. He ordered pigs to be sacrificed on that altar. Okay, And so then in 165 B.C. there was a Maccabean revolt and that was successful by 165. The festival Hanukkah, the festival of the lights, commemorates the rededication of the temple after it had been Zeusified. And they took it in and rededicated it. And the festival of light, they light the menorah. If you've been anywhere where there's a Jewish population, they'll put their menorahs in the, in the window. There's a legend. It's not in the, the book of Maccabees, so nobody's sure whether it really happened or not, that they looked around for the special olive oil blessed by the high priest to burn in this menorah. They only found one flask. They put it in. It was enough for one day. It burned for eight days. But... Nobody's really sure if that's a, like a legend or a reality. But what is known is that it's, it's an eight-day festival. That's what was the Maccabees uh, ordered, and it's, and it's lasted ever since. So in Daniel 11.31, we're going to see this when we get over to, to uh, Daniel 11. We're going to be talking about a lot more detail about these, these various intrigues that happened during this time period. And in 11.31... We're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, the temple, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. So Antiochus, when he put the altar of Zeus 
and he sacrificed the pig on the altar, he did the abomination of desolation and perhaps other things as well. And what we're going to see in chapter 12 is that same term is used for what the Antichrist is going to do at the end of the age. So when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of in Daniel, that phrase refers to two different things. It refers to Antiochus Epiphanes' event, but in the, of course in the time of Jesus, that's already happened. That happened you know, and, uh, two, almost 200 years ago. And so what he's talking about is something like that is going to happen again in the future. And when that happens, then you know the time of the end is coming. And in chapter 12, we're going to see this abomination of desolation happens in the middle of the seven-year period, the tribulation, and when the great tribulation begins. Okay? So that, that's the background of this Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 10, so it grew up, this horn growing to the south, this is Antiochus. It grew up to the host of heaven, cast down some of the hosts, some of the stars of the ground, trampled them. So you've got a spiritual battle happening here, right? And if, if you go in and you put an altar to Zeus and you outlaw Judaism, that's a spiritual war breaking out, right? We're going to exterminate the Jews. Have you ever heard that before? Okay, so we're going to exterminate the Jews. We're going to exterminate Judaism. Anybody that's going to practice Judaism is going to die. So now we have a spiritual war underway. Verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Verse 13, uh, oop, I missed verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, Theos Epiphanes, right? And also, I will determine who you worship. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, that's Antiochus, to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So Antiochus is doing great. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be? concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. He said to me, for 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So, most likely what this means is that there were 2,300 days where the sacrifices had stopped and the defilement was taking place until it's restored. So, again... But what the Bible's predicting is something really bad's going to happen. It's going to last for a certain period of time, and then I'm going to clean it up. And these days here, these do not correspond to any of the days in Revelation or the days about the tribulation time. It's a totally different number. So pretty clear here we're talking about Antiochus, and we're going to see it almost stated overtly here in just a second. So verse 15, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, this river he's at, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. 
Now the fact that this says time of the end and this Antiochus is before even Jesus, you know, makes you wonder, well, why does he say the time of the end? And I think one way to look at this is when you look at Revelation, it looks like the beast, and the beast has the characteristics of Babylon, it has the characteristics of Persia, it has the characteristics of Greece, and it is a Roman beast, that all these things coming together are building up to the time of the end. That's one thought. Another thought is that this Antichrist picture here, this Antiochus, he's foreshadowing the, uh, the next Antichrist that's still in the future to us, which is ultimately going to lead to the kingdom of God. So I, all of this time is the time. We're living in end times. We are in the time of the end, even though we don't know how close to the end we are. Now, as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. So there's going to be an indignation where people rise up against God, and that is what God is patiently enduring at this point in time, but it is going to be cleaned up. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So now we're getting an ex- explicit explanation. The two horns are Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, which again at this time would have been pretty unthinkable that the, that the kingdom of Greece could do something like this. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. That's Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And this is the four, the Ptolemy, the Seleucid, and the Macedonian Greece. And in the latter time of their kingdom, the Greek kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, having fierce features who understand sinister schemes. He took his throne by intrigue. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So we've got this spiritual battle going on, and likely this is satanic, that this is happening, and you got, you know, he's thrown some of the host of heaven down. We've got a satanic clash here, Satan, you know, the good, the good versus the evil, breaking out in the physical world, just like it's going to take place in the, in the time of the end with Revelation. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Remember, many, many people were killed by his army, the, Jew, the Jews. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Again, this is foreshadowing the Antichrist who's going to make a covenant. And there's going to be this time of peace. And then he's going to break the covenant. And there's going to be like the worst time ever. It's a de- deceit. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. Theos Epiphanes. Right? I am like God. I'm the representation of God on earth. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. So he's going to stand up directly against God and the God of Israel, which he did when he said Zeus comes in here instead of sacrificing to Yahweh. But he shall be broken without human means. Antiochus Epiphanes died of a natural death of some kind. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Now this phrase, no one understood it, is really interesting. Because that would indicate 
that probably he explained this vision to other people. And people are trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? What does this mean about the Medes and the Persians? What does this mean about Greece? And it could well be that Belshazzar, who's only like a dozen years away from uh, the end of the Babylonian Empire here, could have you know, had his thinking uh, influenced by this dream. We, we don't know. But clearly they're trying to figure it out, even though he explicitly said the Medes and Persians and then the Greeks, and they're like, well, how, how could that be? How's that possible? It's very interesting. But from us, looking back, we can say, well, God had preordained that this is going to take place, and what was seemingly impossible of the circumstances of this day was certain in the economy of God. So what do we take from this? Well, what do we take from this, I think, is the same thing we take from Revelation, which is God is in control. And remember in Revelation, the word throne shows up 41 times. And the, most of Revelation takes place from the throne room or surrounding the throne room or, in it, or somehow connected with the throne room. And the real clear picture is God never leaves here. No one challenges this throne. And remember, in, in Revelation, every terrible thing that happened was authorized. The four horsemen of the apocalypse going out. And it was given to them to conquer. It was given to them to go and, and do famine. The demons in the bottomless pit, the angel comes down and says, Here, here's the key. Let them out. It was authorized to let those guys out. All these things are authorized. Every single thing is authorized. And so terrible things happen. And God is letting those things happen as a part of his plan for human history. Now, does God tell Satan, hey, I want you to go do this? No, he doesn't tell Satan to go do that. Satan is Satan. Satan does what Satan does. He wants to ascend the Most High, and he wants to eliminate anybody that's in his way, which he has a lot of friends, right, in the world that want to ascend to the Most High and eliminate anybody that's in his way. Antiochus and all these ancient rulers fit that mold very well. Assassination was very routine. We saw it in the Roman emperors. We've seen it in all these different empires. But uh, ultimately, God is in control and the outcome is certain. So for the Jews, they suffered horrifically. They're exiled. And then they're brought back. And then they're exiled again. Now they've been brought back again. But they've not been restored to the, what God has promised them to be restored. Not yet. But is it going to happen? Yes, it's absolutely certain. Let's just close by looking at Romans chapter 11 where these things are promised very explicitly with respect to the Jews. And, and Paul is firming up an argument against these detractors, these slanderers who are attacking his message. And in Romans it has kind of two parts in verses, I'm sorry, in chapter 1 through 8. He's, he's really going against the idea that they're saying, well, Paul is teaching grace, that God just gives us justification in his sight, and that can't be right. You've you got to come and follow our rules also, right? The, these just Jewish competitors he had. You've got to follow our rules. You can't just have God just come in and give you this grace. If you did, 
then you could go sin all you wanted to and it would make God more gracious, which means you should sin because that would be doing God a favor. See how crazy that is? That's what the detractors are saying. He answers that one through eight. But they follow on and say, well, look, if, if the law, our rules are not followed, then that would mean God had cast aside Israel. And Paul is arguing in 9 through 11, absolutely not. In fact, in 11.1, he asks the question that he would be answering from these slanderers. I say then, has God cast away his people? Now, interestingly enough, this theological stream that says, uh, yes, actually God has cast away his people, which is very common, is complete, directly contradicted by Paul here because he says, certainly not. He absolutely has not cast away his people. And then he says, I'm one of them. He hasn't cast away me. But why then are the Jews not you know, accepting Christ? Why are the Jews not following God as God has invited them to do? How, why? Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled just so they fall? Just God just want them to fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy... Salvation has come to the Gentiles. So all this bad stuff that happened to the Jews has turned out to be wonderful for us. Because God lets terrible things happen and out of it wonderful things come. And of course our bent would be to say, let's just skip the first part and do the second part. Let's just have the health without the exercise. How about a pill? Just give us a pill. Well, it's not the same if you do that. There's not the lessons learned. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, see how how this conversation that Paul is having that is relevant to us today in 2017 sounds so much like what is happening in Daniel in whatever that is, uh, 350 or so, well, yeah, 300 something B.C. speaking of the time of the Maccabees in 160 B.C. It's, it's all seamless. Verse 26, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, has God forsaken the Jews? Has God forsaken Israel? Did his promises to Abraham get shifted to somebody else? Absolutely not. It got expanded to somebody else. Us. We got grafted in. And it's an awesome privilege for us. So, as we look at the way Israel is being chastised and groomed and pruned so that they can bloom to be all God intended them to be, I think that directly applies to us, both as a group and individually. What does God do in our individual lives? He prunes us. He grooms us. And if we will listen, he corrects us and chastises us. Why? So that we can grow into all he intended us to be. And if we insist on it, we can have death instead. If we insist on it, we can have slavery instead. We can insist, we can have that if we insist. But what God wants us to do 
is to be faithful witnesses and not fear death. And in doing so, he'll elevate us to be victors, conquerors, overcomers.